The question is power. Well, most journalists have more power than most congressmen. The point is that it's a very powerful branch of government today, which our forefathers didn't foresee. That was Roger Ailes in 1989, then working as a political consultant. He would soon be hired by Rupert Murdoch, an Australian billionaire and news baron, to lead the Fox News Channel, which itself would go on to become the most-watched TV news network in America. I'm Sean Morrow, correspondent at Now This, and this is Who Is, the podcast where we examine power by looking at the people who have it. We're doing something a little different this week. Rather than talking about one person, we're talking about a few people and an idea. An idea that has had a symbiotic relationship with conservative power since the Nixon White House. It's liberal America's biggest boogeyman, accused of corroding our government and brainwashing our friends' dads, spreading hate and reporting from an alternate universe, and acting as America's first state news agency, both parroting and perhaps even inspiring White House policy. That seems dogmatic truth to the left, and growingly, the center. But we don't want to just bash Fox News. We want to examine how Fox has altered American democracy forever. This is Who Is Fox News. I spoke with a panel of three top thinkers who study how Fox News works on psychological, cultural, and political levels, and got on the phone with a Fox News contributor who appeared on the network literally hundreds of times and experienced firsthand the toxic behavior that would end up taking down some of Fox's biggest names. We'll get to that. But first, I want to talk about how we got to Fox News. You can go through the lives of Murdoch and Ailes and kind of see where the ideas for the future network came from. Murdoch is born into a wealthy family in Australia. His father, Keith, is at the helm of a newspaper empire. In 1941, Keith told a reporter, My son Rupert is only 10, but he has printer's ink in his veins. Roger Ailes is born to a lower-middle-class family. He goes to college and gets involved in news production. He works on local shows, and one eventually gets picked up nationally. Well, I actually started with the show as a prop boy and a production assistant in 1962 when I got out of Ohio University. And by 1965, I was executive producer, and I ran it for three years. and took it up to about 180 markets, and then I quit. On one 1968 episode, they have a very special guest on the show, former vice president and future president Richard Nixon. Nixon and Ailes get into a heated discussion backstage about the value of television as a medium. The Washington Post retells the story. Nixon says to Ailes, quote, it's a shame man has to use gimmicks like this to get elected. And Ailes responded, television is not a gimmick. Nixon loved it. And Ailes is hired to work on his presidential campaign. Ailes was 28 years old. Keith Murdoch, Rupert's father, dies of cancer in 1942. And Rupert takes over the family business at 21. He goes on an acquisition streak, buying up news outlets all over Australia and New Zealand before expanding to the United Kingdom, slowly growing his father's media empire. Ailes rose in power within the Nixon campaign, working in television strategy, 
Ailes even produced Nixon's announcement of the moon landing. The Nixon Library says it was Ailes' idea to do a split screen between Nixon and the astronauts. He had a deep understanding of how television would take over how Americans consume news and how that would forever change the politics of the United States. He writes a memo. It's called A Plan for Putting the GOP on TV News. The plan's purpose? To, quote, provide pro-administration news to the major cities of the United States. Translated, that's the dissemination of White House-produced news to viewers across America. Presented as just regular news. Murdoch kept building and expanding his empire. He starts buying up American media. He buys the New York Post. He tries to buy CNN. But Ted Turner, who would become a rival, refuses to let the deal go through. Murdoch wants to buy up a network of television stations to combine, but he can't. He's not a U.S. citizen, and regulations hold back a non-citizen from holding too many American news properties. In 1974, Ailes goes back into media for a bit, drafted into something new, a television company called Television News, TVN. Joseph Coors, like from the beer company, and also a major conservative donor, wants to start a new initiative to fight a perceived liberal bias in the news by making conservative TV packages to send to local news stations. At the time, the Washington Post reported, TVN is one of several projects Coors is financing in his effort to move the United States to the right politically. It sounds a lot like the plan Ailes outlined in that memo he wrote for Nixon. So they bring him on board. A TVN staffer in the 70s said, The Coors people trust Ailes because of his affiliation with the Republicans and because he's not a newsman. And Paul Weyrich, who founded a conservative think tank you may have heard of, the Heritage Foundation, was another backer. Here's Weyrich in an interview. He was sort of the godfather behind the scenes. The whole thing failed. Ailes would bounce around to a few different Republican political campaigns. Way back in the first episode of Who Is, I told you about how when he worked on Mitch McConnell's Senate campaign, he basically pioneered a new form of political advertising. By the 90s, Ailes has an impressive and unique resume, a mix of media and politics. And Rupert Murdoch was looking to hire. I don't know why he came to me. I think that my primary qualification for running a news channel is that I don't have a degree in journalism. Uh, I have a life experience that goes pretty far beyond all that. Murdoch had become an American citizen, and so he's able to buy up whatever media he wants. So what will our Fox News be? It will be different and it will be fair because it has to be. Because a very large audience is begging it to be. Fox News is born. Good morning. Welcome to Fox News Channel. Those are the first words ever uttered on Fox News Channel when it's launched in 1996. The New York Times at the time wrote, quote, while Mr. Murdoch concedes that he sees a liberal bias in television news, he stops just short of championing an explicitly conservative alternative. He says he wants his network to be fair and balanced. That is the Fox you know today. 
So let's switch gears a bit. I brought together some amazing thinkers who study Fox News for a panel. Fox News is tremendously successful, and many people don't really take it seriously. But these folks do. My name is AJ Bauer. I'm a visiting assistant professor in the Department of Media, Culture, Communication at NYU. Uh, my name is Reese Peck. I'm an assistant professor at the College of Staten Island, CUNY. Um, I'm the author of Fox Populism, Branding Conservatism as Working Class, which is a book that traces a history of kind of Fox's counter-elite news brand. Hi, I'm Khadija Costley-White. I'm an assistant professor in journalism and media studies at Rutgers University in New Brunswick. And I study media politics and culture, especially race, gender, and identity. Um, my first book and only book is Branding Right-Wing Activism, the News Media and the Tea Party. Um, I want to go around the circle with this. In one or two sentences, what is Fox News? Uh, well, I'll start. I think of Fox News as a political party in and of itself. It's a, a way to kind of gather, reify, and um, inform a particular political constituency. It represents one of the most sophisticated forms of political communication in modern memory. One thing I would want people to reckon with is that it is, it's not stupid. If you think that, you're not going to understand it. Fox News is the result of 50 years of the development of a critical disposition towards the press among conservatives that is fostered by the conservative movement and conservative media figures for 50 years. Fox was no accident. It's the culmination of 50 years of effort from power players across the conservative world. Murdoch establishes his empire in Australia, and he uses his hallmark, which is this anti-elitist marketing strategy. So he finds the con kind of dominant paper in Australia and then says they're elitist, they're out of touch. This is the paper for the people. Right. He brings this model to the—by the way, he learns this as a graduate student working in the Fleet Street sector of London, right, which is this kind of, you know, legendary tabloid industry there located in London. And he learns the kind of qualities of tabloid marketing, right? So— he uses this tabloid strategy that mixes kind of support for the Thatcher government and has a partisan edge, but also is engaged in celebrity sex scandals and sports and all that, right? And he's connecting the two, politics and pop culture. He tries this in America, and he finds out that his tabloid strategy is not working in the U.S., and he's frustrated. And interestingly enough, he said that, that Americans don't know their own class. They have this self-improvement ethic that they think they're better than working-class taste, right? And, but what he finally came to realize that if you're going to be politically influential, and he was politically influential to a degree within the New York scene using the New York Post, you have to conquer television. Because in America, in the suburban landscape of America, television is king, not the newsstand. You can't do the same thing you did in Australia. And he toyed with all these different projects to adapt a kind of tabloid format that was there with the New York Post, that was there with The Sun, to television. And the first real successful uh, adaptation was A Current Affair, starring Mari Povich, right? And Current Affair blows up in ratings, and it's immediately copied by Inside Edition. Who works at Inside Edition? Bill O'Reilly. Mm -hmm. Bill O'Reilly is watching Mari Povich, his use of body language, his use of emotion. Bill O'Reilly was actually stiff because he was trained as a news reporter in the traditional sense. And he was very boring. If you watch Inside Edition, he doesn't have the Long Island, like, white ethnic New Yorker accent. He tones that down. He's not as emotional. But the problem with those shows is they had a strict soft news editorial 
focus. They didn't engage politics. They weren't the true British mix between partisanship and pop culture. Right. And so it's only with Fox News where you see the true British tabloid partisan style adapted to America, right? And that's the irony, right, of Fox News in many ways for being so, you know, patriotic and American. It's really partly a foreign import. I mean, there's a bunch of other stuff that happens during the 90s and the 80s that help create the scene for Fox, which is like deregulation and, you know, FCC that basically says we're not going to monitor anything. The Supreme Court strikes down the Fairness Doctrine. And then we have the Telecommunications Act happen. And right after the Telecommunications Act gets signed by Clinton, you get Fox News. So it's, I think, you know, really huge failure of politicians and policymakers to really kind of safeguard our news system in a way that allows for more information and like more accurate information and also kind of requires and expects more of these groups that put the word, you know, he literally puts the word news in their title and yet don't feel beholden to produce news. I can talk a little about the Fairness Doctrine, which you mentioned. The Fairness Doctrine was a regulation that was implemented by the Federal Communications Commission in 1948. So the Fairness Doctrine basically says uh, you're required to cover issues of public concern, matters of controversy, mm-hmm. right? And you're required to do so in a way that balances both sides, right? That allows for both sides of whatever that particular issue might be. Right. Um, and so this was the kind of regulatory framework that defined a lot of the kind of news and political commentary throughout the 20th century in the United States. Well, the FCC ends the Fairness Doctrine in 87, and then who gets started in 1988 but Rush Limbaugh, right? And then you get mm-hmm. off to the races. There's a similar kind of narrative with, like, the uh, 1996 Telecommunication Act mm-hmm. and Fox, right? That There's a unilinear, like, planned uh, Masters of the Universe kind of narrative. But if you actually look at the debates around the Fairness Doctrine and ending it in the 80s, the conservative movement was split. History is contingent. People are making decisions without knowing what the outcome of them are going to mm-hmm. be, right? Uh, but fast forward to the 1996 Telecommunication Act that's been mentioned, it did two things. One, it dismantled laws that prevented conglomeration. So it crossed Mm -hmm. ownership laws, right? And so immediately you see all these smaller media companies Mm -hmm. get gobbled up and turned into like five companies, right? Transnational, massive companies. The second thing it did is it made news more, to Kadisha's point, it made news more of a business. It's like bottom line, right? Right. And so then the values of journalism changes where you're it's not driven by these high modern professional tenets of objectivity, neutrality, professionalism, facticity, all that. It's spectacle. It's bombast. It's entertainment because you now as a news organization have to make a profit. You didn't necessarily have to make a profit in the network era, right? And what's very cheap, right? So if you're thinking as a business, one way to cut your bottom line is to do just opinion uh, show. Right. So really, the 1996 Telecommunication Act launched this idea of opinion journalism because there's nothing cheaper, right, than just two chairs and people talking. And so you can cut back on investigative journalism, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. they found it extremely popular, right? This opinion, but it had a lot to do with the business logic and the deregulation that changed the kind of the way that journalists started thinking about what they're doing, right? And news organizations thinking about who they are and what their priorities are. And, and that changed. Right. I mean, in the 80s, you get like a current affair. Right. Mm-hmm. Which is like the first time you get Rupert news. Murdoch, that is, yeah. News which, Corp. Exactly. Which is like the first time you really kind of see news as entertainment. And that is this whole shift. So this introduction of profit and the deregulation is really key to this. Like if we, you know, I sometimes joke, I'm like, do we even have an FCC anymore? But if we had an FCC that really kind of 
reimagine that role as really kind of being a guardian of the public interest, I think we'd have to see a shift in what Fox News gets to be and what all these other networks get to be at this moment. And so there is this kind of, yeah, they're kind of a genius, but also the rise of neoliberalism and this belief in the free and unregulated market that nothing really belongs to the public is also part and parcel of this process. One thing we got to remember with Fox News is it largely stands on the shoulders of the conservative movement, Mm -hmm. like in terms of its narratives and its themes. And so in many respects, it created a corporate strategy that just took advantage of all the activist work in terms of rhetoric that conservatives had cultivated for decades, right? So to understand Fox, you got to understand the complexity of the conservative movement and its rhetorical strategies, its ideological branches, right? Well, I mean, I think... Part of that speaks to the fact that they're building on a white evangelical movement that's happened throughout the 20th century, right? So, like, the way that they speak to an audience isn't just tapping into kind of notions of Americanness, but notions of, like— American and evangelical Christianity. And I think that's part and parcel of this kind of always oppressed, always under attack notion. I went to, I grew up like as a white evangelical, though I'm obviously not, right? I went to a black church on Sundays, but during the week, I went to a white evangelical Christian school. And so the training from when you're a kid, right, is like about how Christians are oppressed, right? I mean, we read about Nero, Nero when we were kids and how he liked listening to Christians die and vats of oil in his garden. Like there was this notion that being a Christian meant to always fight, that you are always persecuted, that you always have to push back. And I think that's part and parcel of how Fox's rhetoric kind of taps into a particular strain of being American. Fox is always establishing its brand identity, its audience's identity in contradistinction and contrast to an adversarial force, right? Right. But in some ways, that's the very nature of partisanship itself, Mm -hmm. right? And the genius of Fox was, look, there's already political polarization going on since the Nixon era, right? So, you know, they exploited that growing polarization for branding purposes. And the genius of Ailes was to see that actually creating a brand community is very similar to the formation of partisan identities, right? Right. So market positioning is a term that marketers will use. You know, the Pepsi challenge, right? You look at the dominant product player in a market and you relentlessly define your upstart brand against that dominant player, Apple versus PC, right? That's kind of genius to me, right? You see the kind of logic of partisanship as similar as the logic of marketing, right? And then you create this something to rally around, something to emotionally invest in, where CNN was like, we're the first on the scene. We give the best information. MSNBC's like, we have Tom Brokaw and like network (laughs) anchors, and we have high-tech computers in the studio. (laughs) You know, and so I, I think that they... You have to credit Fox for kind of seeing historical conditions and trends and then proactively channeling them, capturing them, Mm -hmm. where I think the other news networks were kind of caught off guard. Think back to when Ailes produced ads for Mitch McConnell. The ads weren't about why McConnell is good, why McConnell should be elected. They're about why his opponent was bad, taking too much money from special interests. That's a classic and well-known sales technique. There are other keys to Fox's magic. So for me, the most important thing about Fox isn't so much like the production qualities, although that's also very important. It's that 
when people tune into Watch Fox, it makes them feel smart. It makes them feel validated. It makes them feel like they're thinking critically. And so, again, it may not be intellectual, right? And it's anti-intellectual in a variety of ways. But Fox has succeeded in creating a way of feeling smart for folks that I think is really powerful. There is a word called epistemology, and that essentially means the rules of truth. How do we know what we know? What's the criteria of evidence or knowledge you bring to an argument that advances the kind of truthfulness of what you're interpreting? And what I look at in my book is I discovered that Fox News has different rules of truth. It has, and I kind of connect it to populism. It's kind of in a populist epistemology, right? And they'll make arguments in the face of, like, an expert, and they'll counter with, like, common sense, right? And what does that mean? Uh, well, sometimes it'll be like, so O'Reilly would be debating someone on World War II history, and he would say, you know, a historian would be like, well, here are the statistics and here are the numbers of what was happening when the U.S. military decided to advance toward Japan or whatever. And you go, that's not true. My dad was in World War II. And I remember he told me, right, it's not how it went down. And what I found, which I really was fascinated with, was the way they would pivot and have their own conservative intellectuals, right, switch gears and kind of use argument strategies that resemble something that we are more maybe comfortable with, like, you know, technocratic expertise, uh, citing statistics, performing that kind of detached professional style of argumentation. They literally use different ways to make truth claims in their programs. And I think they can be quite sophisticated, actually. They also are really good at provoking other media to mm-hmm. respond to them. Mm-hmm. And, and that's part of their business model, I actually think, right? That in order to kind of prove that they are the real kind of anti-hero, I guess, in certain ways, or the hero, depending on who you see, they have to kind of provoke coverage on MSNBC. They have to provoke coverage on CNN and in newspapers and New York Times and Washington Post. And so there's actually this strategic kind of maneuvering. And a lot of it comes down to appearances, aesthetics. There are so many things that ticker tape, you know, the the chicken, you know, the the pyramid and the use of like glittering graphical display and the candy colored sets. And it's always interesting that the kind of mainstream news mocked a current affair and then Nightline copied the video windows and the graphics. CNN and MSNBC mocked Fox News for the music and the segment transitions, the alert, the Fox News alert, right? And then they proceeded to copy those presentational features. And this is kind of the irony that speaks to Ailes himself, that he uses kind of hip culture that we usually associate with the left, like being aesthetic, aesthetically transgressive, mm. right, to mobilize right-wing politics, right? And he learned the hip world of, like, daytime talk shows, like all those insights and, and the importance of visual communication was a really big thing for Roger Ailes. I mean, there's a famous anecdote of how he selected talent, right, where he would sit in his hotel room and turn the sound off, and he'd watch the anchor's body language, just the visual presentation of the anchor, and he said, if you were interesting enough visually, you would motivate him to get up off the bed and turn it on and actually hear what you have to say. Ailes' focus on appearance was no secret. He was pretty open about it. In that plan to get the GOP on TV news he wrote for Nixon, he said, quote, the host of the local television program is the anchorman. He must appear informed and be attractive to be successful. And he kind of danced around it in this 2004 interview. Look, I sat down one day and decided, what do I look for when I look for talent? And I came up with a list of 27 things. You know, do they know how to tell a story? 
Would I enjoy having dinner with them? Do they know how to form an argument? Do I hate their agent? I mean, can they speak? You know, do they have good articulation skills? Can they read teleprompter? Are they a good interviewer? Are they curious? You know, why do I like them? Are they flaky? I mean, there are things you just look for when you talk to people. Do they have a sense of humor? So I knew I had to talk to someone who had been brought onto Fox as talent. What's it like to work with Fox News? Sean Hannity wouldn't answer my calls or my Venmo requests. So I called up Caroline Heldman, who was a Fox News contributor, a talking head. She knows Fox from the inside. She's also a Ph.D. holding expert in media and politics. My research focuses on the presidency with a specific focus on systems of power, so race, class, gender. And I I look at how media shapes the presidency to be a very kind of anti-democratic institution. Excellent. And how did your research bring you to Fox News as a contributor? I was scouted by Jesse Waters, who was Bill O'Reilly's producer many years ago when I gave an address at NYU. So I was presenting research on an election and uh, I was essentially scouted after that talk and asked if I wanted to do media work. And so I got into the Fox News system and actually the first show that I ever did was uh, with Sean Hannity. And how many times did you appear on Fox News approximately? Oh, I tried to figure this out at one point, somewhere between 500 and 1,000 times. And I know that's a terribly big range, but I was doing so many shows during that time, well over 500. I mean, I could go on and on about the misinformation that they present as fact and then use it to drum up emotion. So when I would come into the Fox arena and present data or present facts, there was little to no interest in actual facts, right? What I discovered is that the messaging and the frames were very centralized. So everyone was essentially on the same page in terms of how they were going to be framing an issue. I had the experience of going on a lot of different shows across both Fox and Fox Business each week. And so I was seeing the same frames come up again and again and again with very different hosts even different topics, but the same sort of packaging was coming up, which told me that it was pretty centralized. I also learned that Fox engages in anti-journalism in the sense that they're not actually generating their own stories. They're very much basing their stories in response to other news outlets. So every time I would go on a show, I would get links from the producers from other outlets, so MSNBC, CNN, and we would essentially be countering those narratives. So they were very planfully taking the stories and the framing from other networks, bringing them into the network and onto a show and countering them. So there was nothing kind of creative or journalistic about what they were doing or do now. They're simply looking to see what is there. They're pulling it out from other networks and then they're repackaging it and reframing it for their viewers. I also think that they're successful because they're tapping into fear rather than tapping into curiosity and wanting to know about the world and being informed. They're actually tapping into biases and fears that people have and they're making people who fear the shifting social order feel better about themselves. And it's like a mainline 
into aggrieved entitlement, which is this idea, you know, that certain people have that, you know, they have social status and they deserve social status. So, for example, there are a lot of white men who have what's called aggrieved entitlement and that they think that they deserve to be at the top of the social pecking order. And so as the social structure is shifting and people of color and women are getting more power, it's really scary when you look at it and you think that you belong, you know, you have a right to be there. And so I think Fox really feeds that aggrieved entitlement, that the fear of the shifting social order, and it makes people who benefit from the existing or traditional social orders feel good about themselves. And it gives them reason to believe that the world is changing around them in ways that are unfair. To that point, here's Tucker Carlson, a Fox News host, talking about diversity on his show. A recent piece in National Geographic tells you a lot about demographics in America and about how bewilderingly fast they're changing without any real public debate on the subject. The magazine profiles a small coal mining town of Hazleton, Pennsylvania. In the year 2000, Hazleton's population was 2% Hispanic. Just 16 years later, Hazleton is majority Hispanic. That's a lot of change. People who grew up in Hazleton returned to find out they can't communicate with the people who now live there. And that's bewildering for people. That's happening all over the country. No nation, no society has ever changed this much this fast. An average 3.5 million people watch this show every day. The fact that Fox is considered a legitimate network instead of a propaganda network, I think, speaks volumes to how little media literacy we have in the United States. Um, I am not particularly optimistic that we can, you know, flip some sort of switch and all of a sudden people will see what Fox is. Um, I think at the end of the day, you know, that this network has had a profound effect, we know from research, that it's actually uh, increased vote share for the Republican Party by significant margins, about 1% in the 2000 presidential race, up to a 4% shift in 2004 and a 6% shift in 2008. Um, And I'm anticipating, you know, research from 2016 that finds that it's even greater. At the end of the day, um, Fox News has, since its inception, Fox News has been a propaganda machine. And the question is, for whom? And also the question is how they're doing it, right? So the for whom are for wealthy Republicans who want their class interests protected, right? And so you have a small group of wealthy Americans who are using Fox to manipulate. They're they're using fear tactics around issues of gender, issues of race. Uh, issues of sexuality in order to win elections that allow them to pass tax policies that benefit them. This goes beyond just Ailes and Murdoch and Fox. The conservative movement and Fox News are intrinsically linked. In biology, it's called a mutualistically symbiotic relationship, like a little shrimp that hitches a ride on a whale but picks barnacles off the whale so everyone wins. They're all connected. Here's Ailes again in 1989. Politics and, uh, and entertainment are very, very closely tied, and uh, there is a symbiotic relationship that will continue and probably get stronger. And that was decades before a WWE Hall of Famer was elected president. We'll get to how the link between the conservative movement and Fox is stronger than ever, and Roger Ailes' shameful, self-imposed downfall after this break. You know what happens next. It was all over the news. 
There's a movie, Bombshell, and a miniseries, The Loudest Voice in the Room. Fox News and Roger Ailes are hit with allegations of sexual harassment, abuse, discrimination. One of the women who bravely stood up to call out Fox for this behavior? Caroline Heldman. I was never intending to go public about Fox because I knew what would happen next. So I work with sexual harassment and rape survivors. I do consulting and advising for public survivors. So I knew full well what was going to happen if I came forward. The first thing is I wasn't going to get any compensation or any apology or any, you know, sort of justice from Fox. But the second thing is I knew there would be a big media pile on and there would be a character assassination, which is exactly what happened. The only reason that I came forward was to help other women. The only reason I came forward about my experiences of sexual harassment and gender discrimination at Fox was to stand in solidarity with other women. So when women came forward about Eric Bowling, I lent my voice to that and said, yes, indeed, he did this to me as well. The same thing with Bill O'Reilly. With Bill O'Reilly, the situation was actually a little more complex. I had legal representation with Lisa Bloom, and my lawyer told me that she knew that if there was one more complaint, he would be removed. And so I knew that I had experienced this, and I had legitimate claims against him, as did dozens of other women. So I knew he would be removed if I filed a complaint. And so I called the Fox News hotline uh, at around 9 a.m. and went in to teach my class told them what I had just done. And by the time I walked out of my class, he had been removed from his position at Fox. And I came forward because there were two other women who were reluctant to come forward. But with the three of us, they felt as though they could do that. My entire motivation for coming forward was to stand in solidarity with other women who had gone through this. Because at the end of the day, whistleblowers at Fox or elsewhere tend to bear the personal brunt of that decision. And they tend to get no justice, which is exactly what I experienced. And of course, the kind of Whisper Network spoke about the way Fox star anchors and executives treated women was talked about for ages before anything was finally started to come out in the major press. Can you talk about some of your own experiences with this toxicity? I have done commentary for all of the major networks and Fox News stood out in the pack in the sense that it was like sexual harassment, Wild West. Specifically, I was sexually harassed by Eric Bowling on air and off air. I was sexually harassed by a Woody Frazier in a quid pro quo arrangement, who was one of the producers at Fox, who was actually Roger Ailes' mentor, and also Bill O'Reilly engaged in gender discrimination and sexual harassment. Those three men have multiple allegations against them and lawsuits and settlements. And they were part of a much larger group of men who was allowed to engage in egregiously sexually harassing and illegal behaviors in the workplace. You know, going to Fox News, every time I went into the network uh, in New York, I was expecting to be sexually harassed. It was par for the course there. And, you know, as dozens of women can attest who work there full time or who work there over the years, it really was like the Wild West of sexual harassment. And it was part of a pervasive atmosphere of sexism within the very fabric of the organization. Let's bring back the folks in the panel for a little bit. Fox News is literally an embodiment of the white male gaze, right? Mm -hmm. It's this idea of, so the the desks are glass, right? So the women who are wearing skirts, right, are folding their knees or whatever. So the kind of pervy old men are watching, you know, under the table (laughs) and things. They're all blonde. They all have the very similar, like, traditional, like, gender performance. And so I think that 
there's some subtle cues that go on there, right? So it's not just that Fox, in terms of its actual content, is saying, hey, you're embattled, you're aggrieved against all of these elites that are like changing the culture on you, right? The aesthetics themselves are lending themselves to, okay, well, I'm returning back to the world with a white male gaze, right? In really subtle ways that aren't the content, but are just like the aesthetics of the production of the content. Well, Fox presents a lot of blonde women, right? So they're tapping into a very specific aesthetic, one that is actually classed in a way that I think people don't really think about. So bleach blondes are considered to be sexually attractive, but they're also considered to be low class. And so we, you know, having lots of blonde women on the network, myself included, from left, right and center, regardless of whether it's a, an you know, actual host or conservative or even pulling on guests with that hair color, I, I don't think it was random, right? So there are all of these memes, these jokes about blonde women at Fox, but it, it sends a very specific message about the value of women and the type of woman who is delivering the news, right? I won't get into the details on this. There are many better places to find it, but Ailes was accused of sexual harassment and discrimination against multiple women. He resigned from Fox News, getting a $40 million package on the way out. He's replaced by his boss, Murdoch, and Ailes would continue to advise Murdoch behind the scenes. Ailes managed to fail his way right back into political power. He got hired by the Trump campaign as an advisor. And that would be only the most basic link between the administration and Fox. Here's another quote from Roger Ailes. Quote, I know something about the silent majority. The silent majority will back the president because it has no place else to go. It will back the president unless the liberals successfully convince these people that they are simply being used as political pawns. End quote. That isn't from the Trump era. It's from Ailes's Nixon writings. The funny thing about my book is I thought it was all insightful. And then Trump comes along and everything I thought was like me observing stuff is now very explicit, right? He's hiring Fox News hosts and Fox News producers to be like in the White House and to run things at the White House. He's having constant conversations with Tucker Carlson. These other people are giving him advice on how to be a president. I think that they're very competent what they're doing at Fox, right? So they're a propaganda arm right now for the White House, but they've always been a propaganda arm for corporate interests, for conservative interests. Like we thought there was a distance between the fields of politics and media and entertainment, and they've completely collapsed at this point in the Trump era. Or maybe in some ways that's Trump's true genius, that he kind of saw the writing on the wall, that there is no difference between politics and media. They're completely reduced to each other. And he operates in that way. Fox is now serving a role that no media has ever had in U.S. politics. So it's not just propaganda. It's also, uh, at this point, an extension of the Trump White House, right? So it is the closest thing the U.S. has ever had to state-run media. And I think that at the end of the Trump presidency, we will be able to look back on Fox's role in both elevating Trump and then being an arm of the state in a more critical way. So I think the fact that Fox has gone a step further than propaganda and has now become state-run media, that gives me hope that we can at least have that conversation in a couple of years, which might shift some hearts and minds. But at the end of the day, we Fox and other right-wing media sources that have cropped up because Fox has been so successful aren't going away anytime soon. Roger Ailes passed away in 2017. Rupert Murdoch 
is 88 and has handed much of his business interests over to his sons. Bill O'Reilly is no longer the face of the network. And yet, Fox continues to be incredibly popular, stronger than ever, and more connected to the government than ever. Former Fox News executives and producers work in the White House, and President Trump is certainly a viewer and at times a participant. Fox News is an innovative, highly sophisticated blend of media and politics, the result of half a century of concerted conservative efforts to develop a compelling, aesthetically appealing information machine where millions of Americans can consume fair and balanced news. The outlets Fox inspired, similar fusions of politics and media like Breitbart, The Blaze, and The Daily Caller are successful and influential. But the question, as Ail said, is power. And Fox News will, in all likelihood, continue to be the political power player in media, a defining force in American elections. But what happens when the media becomes too powerful? It it is incumbent upon the media to sort of check themselves when they go too far. And sometimes I think they do go too far. They, they used to cover the news. And today, I think in many cases, they're in the business of creating their own product. And that was none other than Roger Ailes. We're looking forward to a little break for the holidays. I watched like a million hours of Roger Ailes speeches and my brain might melt a little bit. But we'll be back in 2020 an election year, with an episode on the woman from Baltimore leading the impeachment of the President of the United States. Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi. A sincere thank you to all of our guests. A.J. Bauer, a fellow at the Tao Center for Digital Journalism at Columbia University and visiting professor of media, culture, and communication at New York University. His book, News on the Right, Studying Conservative News Cultures, which he co-edited with Anthony Nadler, arrived this fall from Oxford University Press. Khadija White, a professor of journalism and media studies at Rutgers University. Brice Peck, a professor at the CUNY University of New York, Staten Island. And Caroline Heldman, a professor of politics at Occidental College, whose new book, Madam President, Gender and Politics on the Road to the White House, comes out on March 20th, 2020. If you like this episode, don't forget to rate, subscribe, and tell all your friends. We've got a bunch of great episodes coming next year. Who Is is a podcast from Now This. I'm Sean Morrow, senior producer and writer. Michael McDowell is our producer. Editing and mixing by Ernie Indradat. Additional writing by PJ Evans. Production support from Rob Baynard, Amanda Earle, Margot Wall, and Faluke Tuakli. Emily Feld and David Zwick are our producers in Los Angeles. Our executive producers are Sarah Frank, Brett Kushner, and Mangesh Hadakuder. And now this, Tina Xaros is our chief content officer, and Ethan Stephanopoulos is our president. Special thanks to Matt McDonough, Devin Rogerino, and Elias Acevedo for their excellent work on the original video series of Who Is, which you can find on Facebook and YouTube.